So today I want to start by asking you a question, something I want you to keep in the back of your mind as we talk today. What rules your life? What rules your life? Now I know some of you are going to be tempted, hear me, to try to give the church answer, okay? My son tells me that if you're in kids' ministry and they ask you a question and you don't know how to answer it, if you just say Jesus, then there's a good chance you'll get it right. Like, oh, Jesus. Like, yeah, yeah, you're right, but okay, uh, I want you to think a little bit about it. Don't do that this morning. Listen, if it's Jesus, great, okay? But I want you to be brutally honest with yourself. What is it that rules your life? It could be money, it could be your family, it could be maybe your parents rule your life with an iron fist, right? Or through the expectations that they have for you about what you ought to be. Could be that your kids rule your life, right? Their schedules, their needs, their future. These things rule every part of your mental and physical priorities. Is it your desire to fit in? Is it your desire to be loved and needed by someone else? Is it an addiction, maybe, to a substance or to a habit? Maybe it's something I haven't even said. Think about the thing or things or people that rule your life. Now, you might get hung up on the word rule, right? You might be thinking, no one, nothing rules me, right? We struggle with that word, rule, especially ruler, like the ruler of our lives. Why? Because this is America, right? This is the land of freedom. We're not ruled by anyone. There's no, there's no, this isn't a, this isn't a kingdom. This is a democracy. I love being from the United States, okay? And our nationalism tends to get in the way sometimes. But let me better define this word for you. So don't get hung up on that. Rule just means what has definitive authority, what has control over your life, what controls your life. And believe me, something controls your life. Whether you want to admit it or not, someone or something controls your life. There's a driving factor that will push you forward. It may be pride, desire, addiction, necessity, peer pressure. It could be faith. Now, for the people who lived prior to Jesus coming to earth, there was factors driving them as well. Many of them are the same as what controls our lives today. Things like hunger and fear and depression and anxiety. The sin in their life. Those things drove and controlled their life. Now, they had been waiting... For the promise of a Savior to come. God had promised these people a Savior to come and make a difference. They had expectations of how He would come and give them the things that would alleviate the darkness that they were experiencing. And Mark writes his narrative of Jesus' arrival and he is sharing the good news of what Jesus brought with him. That's why we call this a gospel. Gospel means good news. We're learning when we read this what Jesus really brings with him when he brings his kingdom to earth. And what we will find today is that he wants to be the ruler of our life. And our big idea says that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. If you've got your Bible, 
or a Bible app, I would love for you to turn with me to Mark chapter 9, or you can open your Mark journal if you got one of those that we're using during the series. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. The words are going to be on the screen here. But I do want to encourage you, if you would like a Bible, to be able to read at home as well. Go to that hub that Ronnie mentioned in the center of the the lobby. They've got them. They're free. You can have one of those, okay? Now, prior to this section of Scripture in Mark 9, what we find is that we have an interaction with Jesus and his disciples. It's actually in Mark 8. What we see is he, Jesus asks his disciples, who do, you say, who do people say I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter responds to Jesus and says, I believe that you're the Messiah. This, that Peter has verbally acknowledged that Jesus is a deity, right? That he is, that he is the Messiah, the one that was sent It's an amazing moment of acceptance of who Jesus truly is, the one to come and save the Israelite people. He's the promised king. And yet, in the very next moment, Jesus tells them that they must die, that he's got to die. Hey, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again. Imagine the ups and downs of this conversation, of this scenario. First, you're Peter, and and you've just proclaimed Jesus to be Savior of all. And then the next thing you hear is that he's going to have to die. And Peter, it says, rebukes Jesus. It's a heavy word, rebuke, for saying, hey, Jesus, don't say those things. Don't say you're going to die. That's not true. It's crazy. In one breath, he's acknowledging Jesus as king, and then he's not acting like he believes it. Jesus goes on to tell them that for anyone to follow him, they must give up their life. They must accept their death in this world and be ready to do whatever is called of them, even, like I said, to the point of death. Now it's even more depressing if you're a follower of Jesus, right? Not only must Jesus die, but now he's telling us that we will too. This is a turning point in Mark's gospel. In the first seven or eight chapters of Mark, what we find is Jesus is calling people to follow him. He's going around, he's healing, he's doing miracles. He is encouraging people to become disciples and follow him. He's gaining notoriety. And now, in the second half of Mark, he's going to begin to tell them, well, here's what it takes to be a disciple. Here's what it takes to follow me. He is separating the fair-weather fans from the true die-hard believers. Oh, you like healing, Jesus says. Oh, you like that. You like the promise of a future and a hope. You like that I don't just take the best and the rich and the religious elite into something with me. I I take the people who are outcasts, the ones that you wouldn't expect. You like that. Well, let me tell you something. Here's what it really takes to follow me. That's what we all face. You may be someone who says that you believe in Jesus. And then when we read these things, it becomes a challenge. It means giving up my wants and desires. It means letting Jesus define me, truly define me. It means not putting my hope in my money or my family or my career or my education or my physical abilities, but in Jesus alone. And and let me tell you something, that's not easy. We're spoiled. We have let lots of things rule our lives. 
Jesus is saying it should be only about me. Jesus is king. And what we're about to read together is going to show that so clearly. It's in Mark 9, right at the beginning of Mark 9. And we're going to start reading right here in verse 2 of chapter 9. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Now there's a lot going on here, even in this first couple passages. Jesus takes his inner circle, right? These three disciples who were the closest ones to him up on a mountain. And they experience something astonishing, Some of this narrative, just I want to give you some context because it's important. Some of this narrative points backwards to something that happened way back in the Old Testament. Hundreds of years prior in the book of Exodus, Moses and the Israel people, they're at the foot of Mount Sinai and the cloud of God is on the mountain. The people are afraid, right? They're afraid of God. Yet Moses goes up on the mountain. He tells God, I want to see your face. I want to look upon you, God. And God tells Moses that he will allow him just to see the reflection of his glory. That that he will pass by Moses and that when he does, he will cover his face so he can just see a portion of him. Because God says that no man may see my face and live to tell about it. That's powerful. His radiance is so brilliant that And amazing that just to look at him, it would cause Moses' death. This was the relationship, by the way, between God and his people at this time. And now this wasn't always the case. I want want you to know that in the beginning, in Genesis, when things were created, before sin entered into our world and created this divide between us and God, Adam and Eve, it says, regularly spent time with God in his presence. But then the darkness entered into our world, and what happened is it removed our ability to be with God the way that he had intended. And if we tried to get close, it meant our death. That's fear, right? There is a power in that. These people understood the power. They, this is what the Israelite people expected of their relationship with God, a distant relationship someone to intercede for them. They couldn't do it themselves. And I want you to know that we shouldn't forget that and take that lightly. God is our king. He is powerful. He is fear-inducing. And we something we should have a healthy respect for in our lives. Listen to me. We've let Jesus become our friend. And that's good, but it's also a struggle for us. Because when you only look at Jesus as a friend, when you look at him as a buddy, right, then it's okay to ignore what he says to you. Here, Jesus, when I'm ready for your advice, when I want your advice, I'll come ask for it. That's how we treat our friends. You don't go ask your friend for advice for something you don't want their advice on. You come ask my advice, I'm going to give it to you. If you don't, I won't. That's just the truth. That's the way we've started to treat Jesus. As someone we can ask for advice when we want it. 
Do you think servants of a king ask him for advice? No. They come to him seeking his favor. They come to worship him. They come to do what he says to do. Jesus is king. And the Israelites believe that guys like Moses and Elijah, which makes this all more important why they were there in this moment, guys like Moses and Elijah would be the ones who would bridge that gap to God. They would be the ones that, that crossed that divide. But they didn't end up being the ones who did it permanently. And that's why this interaction becomes important, because we get three disciples standing before Jesus when he takes on the full glory of God. Look at the way it describes it. It says his radiance. I imagine staring it into the sun. That's what I picture. And yet Peter, James, and John don't die. And that's important because it is a revelation that God is now with us. He is now living with us in physical form, and he is working already to remove that divide that is there. No longer is our relationship distant from God. It is personal. We can be close to this powerful Savior. Still in this moment, Peter, Peter, if you've read the Bible, he's awkward. He's like all of us. He's like me. I honestly, honestly look at Peter and go, yeah, I would have done the same thing. He didn't know what to say. He's like, well, i got to say something. right? I just can't stand here silent. I need to just open my mouth. Something's got to come out. If you've ever been in a life group when somebody asks a hard question, he's the guy that's like, well, and he immediately jumps in. There's no awkward silences for Peter. Look at this in verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I love what it says here. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Peter says the only thing he can think to say. He leans back into his heritage. That's what he does. He says, let's put up shelters. The actual word that they used here was probably the word tabernacles. Tabernacles. Tabernacles were things that the Israelite people built as temporary temples for God. They would build these to worship God. That's, that is how religions treat deities in this time. Even now. They know there's a gap between them and their gods, right? Like any other religion at the time. Humanity and deity are separated. So they build temples and tabernacles to provide a place where they can worship. Where they can come and make sacrifices to atone for sin. That was their heritage. We still do this today. Hear me. We do this today when we focus too much on following all the rules and traditions properly. If you don't do this right, then maybe you'll upset God. We focus too much on worshiping our religion instead of our God to try to bridge the divide between us and God on our own. If I do enough, maybe I can make bridge that divide. And that's what Peter suggests. And God, again, brings a cloud on the mountain. Remember that back from the Old Testament? He brings that cloud on the mountain. And this time he clarifies who Jesus is. He says, this is my son. He's saying, this is the son of God. He drives the point home. Listen, 
Those guys knew what this cloud was. They knew their history. They understood that the cloud that sat upon Mount Sinai, the cloud that led them in the wilderness during the day, they knew that that was God. And so he brings it back. And he tells them, especially Peter, who, remember, just a little bit before had acknowledged who Jesus was, he tells them, you said it, now I'm telling you, this is my son. He's the son of God. And he says what? Do what he says. He's in charge. Jesus is king. See, the king no longer lives in a faraway land, in a castle somewhere, right? He stepped down off the throne and he now lives among us. You see, when we live in a way where something rules our life, we are looking for that thing to bring us some type of glory. It's what we want. Each of us has a longing in our heart for fulfillment. What is it that will fulfill our lives? Will it give us healing and hope? Will it bring us purpose and calling? That's why we let it rule us. We want to be acknowledged and loved and find belonging. And when Jesus steps into our world, he is telling us that we can't Look for those things to bring us fulfillment or bridge the gap to our Father in heaven. He's here to do that. You see, these three guys believe Jesus was Savior, but now they have experienced truly what He is. They have seen the very face of God. This has made them different. This has changed them Jesus has prepared them. He's preparing them for what will happen when he must leave them and let them lead his people. See, it's not enough that they believed in their minds. It wasn't enough that they had this cognitive understanding. They needed to have a life-altering experience with God. We need to experience things like this too. In our worship, in our everyday life, in places where we see God moving in our lives, we need to draw closer to Jesus and discover that we need to let him rule over us. We need to be, have a renewed spirit of worship for Jesus, our king. And so Jesus and these guys come down off the mountain. And they come to the other disciples who are in a town nearby, and they've walked into this big argument between these guys and some of the religious elite and the teachers of the law. It's how quickly, right? Life jumps right back at them after they have this mountaintop moment, right? That happens a lot, doesn't it? And they're arguing because this man has brought his demon-possessed son, it says. His demon-possessed son has become, they've brought him to be healed by the disciples, and yet they can't heal him. They can't cast out the demon. This is a situation that many of us might deal with. Now listen, it may not be demonic possession, just like this child, but we all deal with some type of demon in our lives. Some type of struggle that plagues who we are, derails us whenever we're getting better. Not all of them are brought on by outside forces either. Some of our demons are of our own creating. And they see Jesus. All these people see Jesus and they run to him. The disciples run to him and say, hey, you need to help. They explain to him, I can't heal. We can't heal this kid. We've been trying to, won't come out. And Jesus asks him, he says, bring the boy to me. 
And even at that moment, right, as we're leading up, it's crazy. The demon recognizes who Jesus is, by the way. The demon knows Jesus. And it throws the boy down again into a convulsion. And this is in chap- still in verse, chapter 9, but we're going to be in verse 21. Look at this interaction. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. What a scene, man. It's like something out of a movie, right? Something we see in... Well, it's October, horror movies, right? (laughs) The father says to Jesus, if you can heal him, if you can, Jesus, please do it. And I love Jesus' response. He's like, if, if? He's saying everything is possible for those who believe. And this father says a sentence, guys, I'm just going to tell you that I think we often all need to say in our lives, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Seems contradictory, yet it is so profound. He's saying, Jesus, I want to believe. I'm struggling. I've put my faith in other things. Help me overcome my weakness. This is important because, listen to me, guys, Jesus doesn't need perfect righteousness. He knows we don't have that in us. He needs repentant helplessness. That's what he needs. He needs us to let him rule our lives, to admit our shortcomings, and to ask him to help. Jesus is king. See, the disciples couldn't heal this kid because they've been trying to do it of their own righteousness. I imagine they've been going around. Listen, Scripture tells us they're going around, they're healing, they're preaching. They've begun to get a little bit of a big head, I think. Right? They begin to think that they're the ones doing the work. And and so reality is they lose faith. Pride has caused that in them. They've become to let their fame and that pride become their king. And Jesus says this healing only comes through prayer. Prayer is our connection to God. That is our connection, and they have disconnected from their king. They have started their own sovereign state, right? We're the disciples. We can do it. They were out there on their own, and Jesus says, get back over here with me. The beginning of the message, I asked you to think about what rules your life. We saw two different interactions here, two different interactions that show two different types of experiences. And I want to tell you that for most, if not all of us, we are trying to rule our own lives. 
We've let this world convince us that we get to oversee our identity. We can decide who we are and what we do. We get to determine what is right and wrong and what is good and righteous. If I want to believe it about myself, then it is true. I can do this on my own. I'm the king of my life. We need a heart change. We are not the king of our lives. On the mountaintop, Jesus is king. He shows us his glory. He reveals his true nature. He divides the gap that we have between us and God. And when he comes down off the mountain, Jesus is still king. In our everyday lives and the things that plague us, he still rules. And just a short time later, Jesus is about to complete the good news. He's going to come down off the mountain and he's going to be on a cross. Where he's clothed in glory on the mountain, he's left naked and beaten. On the mountain, he's surrounded by God. But on the cross, he is left forsaken by his father. On the mountain, he was bathed in light. But on the cross and in the grave, he'll be left in the dark. So why did he do it? He did it for us. He did it because he loves us. He made his way to the cross to defeat evil, to cover our sins in his blood. And he let himself die so that he could defeat death and make it a way for us to be with him forever. See, Jesus went on that mountain to be empowered by God to face that pain and suffering. And he offers the same empowerment to us if we believe in him and let him rule our lives. You may believe in your head that Jesus was who he said he was. It may be cognitive, it may be something you believe, but you need to have a moment where you surrender your life to him, where it moves from your brain into your heart and you let it become reality for what you do every day. Jesus, I believe in you. Help me overcome my unbelief. You hear God saying, you're my daughter, you're my son. I love you. I will go to the end of the world for you. I do whatever it takes not to lose you. I did this all for you. When we realize we're helpless without him, then we worship the true king of our lives. Jesus is king. Today we all need to spend the next few moments worshiping our king. We're going to do that in a couple ways. First, if you call yourself a believer in Jesus, if you're someone who believes in Jesus, you've taken that step of obedience to become part of his kingdom. Listen, I want to invite you to join us as we take communion here in a minute as Darren leads us through that. We're going to remember a sacrifice that, that Jesus made for us. If you're not sure what you believe about Jesus, I just want to tell you, listen, during this communion time, there, you can just sit and reflect about what, what, what I've talked about, what you, what you heard about what Jesus has done for you. 
But for everyone in here, when we worship together in song, I want you to spend that time worshiping the king of the universe. Give your heart over him. Just acknowledge you can't do this on your own. See, we need Jesus to rule our lives. Maybe you need to confess that today. Maybe you've never taken that step. Maybe you've never confessed that you, that you want Jesus to rule your life. So I would say to you, if that's you and you're ready to take that step, then myself, some of the prayer team will be down front here. We want to pray for you. We want to lift you up this morning. Take that step. Give Jesus authority over your life. Then maybe you want to choose to take that step of baptism, right? You want to be obedient to what God calls us to do. You want to bury your old life in the water and come up a new creation. We're doing that next week. Come talk to me today. Come find me. Let's talk about making that happen. See, Jesus is the king of our lives. And he calls us to find ways every day to remember that he's the one who rules. He came to bridge the gap between us and his father. All he asks is that we believe in him and begin to build our life around how he wants us to be more like him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are the king of the universe. You created it all. You saw it all. You set it all into motion. And today, Father, we worship you. We bow before your throne. The Lord who came and lived among us and bridged the gap when we couldn't be next to you. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Let us never forget it. Because only because of what he did, we're able to pray this and be in your presence. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.